I'm Brent Leary. <laughs> and I'm Paul Greenberg. And we are on a roll as the CRM players. Like we've never done three weeks in a row in like years. So this is a this is I, a- usually three in a three in a row means we've done it over five years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Over a five year year or two. But hey, we're doing a special one because there's a third person with us today. He is well. Everybody kind of knows who he is, but he's buddy Brian Solis. Brian, thank you for joining us, man. It's my pleasure. It's awesome to be here. <laughs> I mean, come on, good friends but on Skype. How geeky and cool can we be? Well, yeah, I'm on Skype on my Mac because it won't work, ironically, on Windows. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, anyway. We, I'll leave that one alone. Um, <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to go get somebody. I'll be right back. Right. <laughs> so, uh, well, this is part of the, what do we call this? The, the countdown of the road. <laughs> there, look at that. <laughs> wow, you I'm so excited to be here. You got a really big head. <laughs> like two heads are better, two brines are better. Anyway. You can so. that into a popsicle stick. I mean, a popsicle. <laughs> We're both going to do this together. There you go. Uh, that means then we can add the phrase at the end of this, and twins. Oh, wow. Okay. And moving on along. So, first of all, thanks for taking some time today. We know you're down in San Diego uh, at another conference that you're speaking at. Um, but we're really excited about you coming to be the keynote at CRM Evolution, April 9th to the 11th, Washington, D.C. In fact, actually, you are the keynote for the joint, this co-located conferences there, and you're the keynote for the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, so, so no pressure at all. That's <laughs> yeah. great. You, 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 it's easy. Yeah. I heard, actually, after, uh, when, when we were talking, that, that there was going to be a co-located uh, event, so I'm, I'm excited about it. But I am more excited that we actually get to hang out, and yes, it's been since, since Chicago and, and Brent since... Uh, Boston, I guess, and we got to just hang out for a minute there. Right, and, and inbound, that was a quick minute. It's like, hey, hey. Wow, that's you know? funny. <laughs> you, were, you hung out at inbound, and we hung out at outperform. Yes, in yes. Now. In yep. and out. <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that, actually. If when I, I, well, it sounds like, in my world, it sounds like a cheeseburger. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was say, need, we need a new sponsor, you know, in and out. <laughs> you know, for, but, uh, so, now this is great. I'm really excited that you're uh, doing this. And you came up with a really interesting title. Um, I'm just going to read it here. Designing customer experiences that matter to a new generation of accidental narcissists. Um, most of the narcissists I know are, are not accidental. So okay. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us exactly what an accidental narcissist is. Hold on, I'm taking a selfie. <laughs> I'm old school. I'm trying to take a selfie. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, you know, I thought it would be because it was co-located and also because uh, what I didn't want to do was come to the conference as an analyst. I thought it would be fun to present on a topic that just moves moves people as as uh, not not as employees of company trying to work against a roadmap and a plan or or IT investments or what have you, but just maybe look at why why these changes are taking place. Uh, I think it's a topic that, we're, regardless of industry and regardless of, of job role, that we're not 
we're not spending enough time really examining. I think even if you're parents, we're not spending enough time really understanding what's happening with our relationship with technology. And I call it accidental because I'm a, I'm a hopeless optimist. So I want to see the good in everything, uh, that, the reality is this, is that uh, in the last last three years, I've been doing some really hardcore research with Google that's been almost stealth in, in a way. And, and this year is the first time we're really going to come out in a very public way uh, by looking at just the extent of which just mobile devices, for example, have completely changed how people make decisions. It's actually completely changed how people operate through life. Uh, and if you play that back into things that, for example, if my, if my role is... is or aspects of CX or any any touch point within that journey. Everything that we're doing now is probably for for the wrong reasons. And I think that getting in touch with the humanity of that is going to not just guide technology investments, but hopefully change business strategies for, for the better going forward. What does getting in touch with humanity mean when it comes to that, though? Yeah, so for example, when, when people look for information, their value system has completely changed, right? So it used to be that they might go into the journey with four to six sort of companies and they're looking for the best product and they're comparing features. Before it even gets there, they're looking for people like them. They're, they're, they're not even searching for the type of keywords that you think they're looking for. They're looking, they're asking questions as if there's a human being on the other side of the search box in Google and really trusting the, the content that comes back as their peers and, and what they value and what they look for and what they ask, they're really human. I mean, like people want things personalized. They'll even add words like, what's the best uh, SUV for me? Uh, we see crazy things like, what's the best toothbrush for me? I mean, who searches for toothbrushes? And that's up 200% in the last year. So really what it's looking at is, well, did you tell me? They, they expect personalization at scale. We've been talking about it for a long time, but then what happens, and here's the answer to your question, is what happens when the person on the other side of the screen isn't who you think it is? Hmm. Well, so what are they if they're not who I think I, they are? Well, they're, they're, they're the accidental narcissists, Paul. Oops. Sorry, I let that vanity slip out on you. <laughs> Give me attention now. <laughs> so, so if how what percentage of the folks that uh, customers engage with through their interactions with companies are narcissists in in terms of they're really still focused on their self interest as opposed to what's best for the customer. Well, when we look at it from a business-to-business -business standpoint and then compare that to, say, business-to-consumer or even government in, in, in other ways, I think the thing that – the reason why I focus on the human side of the story is that – I mean, narcissist was just a way of being very compelling in the title. But what's really happening on the other side is that when you have access to, regardless of what industry you're in or what role you play, when you have access to all of these tools that are very empowering, that are very um, – personal, uh, whether it's Tinder or Uber or any of these, these apps, uh, you, you don't, you don't just go to work and say, okay, I understand that those are the types of services that I can use in my consumer role. You, you're bringing just those mindsets, efficiencies, conveniences, uh, personalization into just expectations that you don't, that are ingrained in your subconscious, your second nature now. 
And I think we were, what we're really talking about is reimagining customer journeys and experiences, even policies and products and services for a generation that just expects things to be like everything else. And that's, that's where you know, we're not just challenging convention or status quo. What we're really looking at is how does what my value proposition is and all of the infrastructure to support that align with the expectations and values of someone as they change. And I think the exploration of that is where the magic happens. That's where just even seeking out these questions and the answers to those questions allow us to find opportunities to remove friction, uh, to innovate, uh, to to introduce things that connect the dots in ways that we just thought we didn't have to do before, but now it takes center stage. So uh, when you're, you are dealing at scale, I mean, you know, one of the things that always interested me on how engagement worked was you're dealing with, let's say, a city group which has 300 million customers, right? And uh, and each one of them is expecting exactly that some level of personalization at least. And, and you know, going back to stuff you've written about, I've written about, Brent's written about too, about, you know, it's not really just a millennial thing. It's all generations now pretty much. It's, as you, I think we all used to call it actually, is Gen C, right? So yeah. it's about that grouping, right, who are, Saying, well, look, I know you have 300 million customers, but uh, I don't care about the other 299,999,999. You got to take care of me. And yeah, Citigroup, you know, they're a company, so they're limited by birth. You know, at birth, they're automatically limited, right? They're they're constrained, and so and they can't delight every customer all the time either, and they, or they'd be long broke. But so the question becomes, <laughs> right? How do you actually? When you've got 300 million people at some level, I mean, what's a realistic expectation of trying to personalize that number of people, personalize the uh, interactions of that uh, and experiences that that number of people have with you? Yeah. Well, so how much time do we have? We're not going to do another episode for a year and a half anyway. <laughs> I think uh, one of the one of the things when I when I study this this question is looking at whether or not a company, regardless of who it is or what it is, whether they could even answer what personalization looks like. What what does someone expect? And it's it's. Uh, I'll give you an example. So in the in the last digital state of digital transformation report that I I ran, uh, which was recently, I it's it's it's. It has a bent to customer experience because that tends to sort of be the catalyst where people can come together and, and, and find collaboration across functions and silos. <laughs> I always ask the question, you know, what what's driving this? And they'll say customer experience. Uh, what what are your you know your top challenges and top opportunities? And they'll say trying to understand the digital customer and getting in front of them. And then I'll ask, have you studied your digital customer? Do you know who they are? What they want? What their preferences are? And this year, the number of companies that said yes was only thirty four percent. And that's down from 56% the year before. And it, it's going the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's that part of the answer. And then the second part is it's really fascinating where I started to see things like AI really jump in. And so we have a friend, a mutual friend, Samir Patel, over at a company called Kahuna that is, is scaling AI around marketing engagement and personalization. And just the irony, I got to work with him last year on, on this, and we... We, we found that the irony of that was we have to use machines to help us figure out how to be more human at scale. And that, 
I think what we'll start to see is AI for marketing, AI for employee engagement, AI for all of these different platforms that at least scale personalization within their respective funnels before we get it across the journey. You know, this is sort of an interesting question too is, um, or an interesting part of that is that the one thing you do find is, let's say you have 300 million, you can probably find, and I'm, you know, obviously inventing a number here, 122 million who have similar, uh, who want to want to have similar opportunity and similar choices and have similar interests and similar likes. And, you know, the company itself, if they're smart, and this is, you know, a lot of things come into play here, obviously, but if they're smart, um, can figure out, okay, well, to get to this 127 million, I have to offer them about these 65 things, and then they can make choices six or seven. Right. And ultimately, the the ability to provide them with the uh, to make the ability to provide them with choice is so important to personalization. I can't even begin to say it. So, um, so if I have a choice out of this group of things, six or seven of them are something that means something to me. I'm going to feel like there was a personalized interaction and experience. Ultimately, I hope over time and experience, but. You know, because I've gotten also to control my choice with them, right? So it's the combination of having things that are similar in interest. It's not graphic it's because it's going this way rather than this way. But so it's, it's understanding my interest as a customer and those other 127 million. So, so look at it that way. If you're looking at it from the standpoint of, let's say, the data that's available to help me figure out, you know, help the company figure out what are the choices we want to provide, I mean, how, let's call it this. Obviously, data is data, man. You can do anything you want with it, and it's, right. you know, and you can find proof of anything you damn well want to prove. <laughs> right? right. So the question becomes: How valuable is the actual social data, or or in general, the, the data that's available out there to help define that kind of framework and those kind of choices and that kind of. Uh, potential for interaction. I mean, is it valuable? Is is it actually valuable, or we kind of going half cocked and inventing stuff based on what we wish it was, or wish it actually was telling us. Oh, I, I guess it's both, isn't it? Uh, it, it? I think there's there's the what's happening and there's the what could be happening, and I I, I tend to talk to the what what could or should be happening. Uh, so, for example. We we all know just how biased data is, and or could be, and I think I think that's what I see time and time, which is why I want to I want to bring the humanity back in the conversation. Is we we're we're using data to reinforce our 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 how we work, why we work, and we're we're part of the problem. Right? It's not that we can't do these things; it's that we're not letting ourselves, and maybe that's because. I don't, those are the things that become uncomfortable. If you start challenging convention and norm and process, you're 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 putting your you're putting a target on your back within the organization, and you have to be ready to follow that through because a lot of people aren't r- willing to step into this of, of change or transformation, and that's that's really what we, we have to get at. Do you even know what the choices face? You know, if you're personalizing at scale, you have buckets of people that you can start to design for, and that's the beauty of technology. It's just that, you know, the other thing that I've, I've noticed that, that's making this so, so critical is that because people have access to so much technology on demand, 
and also because they're so mobile and also so distracted by so many different apps, when they go through the journey, they're, they're coming through in bursts. And almost instantly, it's like asking someone to read a book and then time how long they can focus on that book before they, they need a break, no matter how much they love books. So they're already just from the nature of their relationship with technology feel overwhelmed by choice. Yeah. And I think it's just a matter of redesigning the journey for them not to just compromise, make it more efficient so that they can find you and make decisions and purchase and whatever and get service through these channels or implement chatbots. Or It's a matter of reimagining the entire journey to cater to someone who just doesn't want to feel overwhelmed. What if you even went on the opposite to make it delightful or amazing to this expectation and use data to reinforce that instead of how do we improve what we have. And this is a conversation, Paul, you know, you and I have had a million times iteration versus innovation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you. I mean, the thing you can, you can make choice and you can be overwhelmed by choice. That's pretty much it. We all make choices. Obviously that's how we live. We're making every second of every day, one way or the other, about something. The interesting thing from a company side is always to me is, you know, how, how well the company can tailor something, that isn't isn't overwhelming. You know, there's those famous um, studies that were done in the '90s uh, about choice. That uh, was a choice of uh, of jam. There was a, this doctor. I can't think of her name now, but she did this study at a at a, a, a grocery chain, and they put out like jam tastings. And there's one at the table that had like six, another table had 24, right? And Everyone would go to one or the other table. You know, I did a different, so obviously you can see the two choices. But what was really clear was when you had a choice of six that you could taste, you tended to go and buy stuff. When you had a choice of 24, you might taste something, but you tended not to go and buy anything because it was just too many choices. So there is a too many. There's a, there's a point where it just does get, as you pointed out, distraction by multiple apps and million things that get overwhelming. So the interesting question becomes, where is that point happen, right? I mean, like, is, I know, you know, if I if I had in one instance, which I won't go into since you're the one you know, to do most of the talking here, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I once, if I had had a single choice, I would have stuck with something, but I had a choice, so I just left because <laughs> what they what they offered me was ridiculously terrible, right? right. So I, I just left. You give me two choices, three choices maybe, one of them probably would have appealed to me, I would have taken it, and I'd probably be a happy customer, but... In right, as simple as that. I need control of my journey in life, right, as I can without imposing it on someone else, right? And that's pretty much everyone I'm just talking about. So the question, so you're trying to translate that into you know the world of business, the world of just human activity, uh, with less distraction too. So how do you, you personally here, how do you, how do you? Look, you you have the opportunity to be the most distracted human I've ever met, if you wanted to be, right? I mean, I've never seen anything like you with your traveling and the mid, 27 million people hovering over you every minute and 215,000 apps floating above your head, you know? So the question is, how do you actually manage to keep focused? You do. You articulate so well, so you, and you can only do that if you focus. So how do you do it? You know, I, uh, I wrote, I wrote a, a piece on this about the importance of finding uh, focus, and the irony was I couldn't, I had to go to just talk about the irony publicly while I was it. Like, I'm trying to do this, and I can't, and it was just, it's just, I think there's a lot of personal, I think there's 
personal denial in that this this is affecting us to the extent it is. Uh, one of the things that I one of the things I presented on last night was design ethics, which is a, an emerging movement from guys like Tristan, uh, former Facebook designer, or. You have all of these folks coming out, even Sean Parker coming out recently, that talked about just the networks were designed or these devices were designed to be manipulative and addictive. Uh, in fact, the like button, for example, was designed with the same principles of slot machine play uh, as just to manipulate your emotions, to want to keep checking for validation. And, you know, over time, that doesn't just play with your focus. It plays with your self-esteem. It plays with your you know, a lot of things. Uh, so the, I don't have an answer to your question. I think the answer to your question is I'm exploring it now because I started to realize that I was, I was losing my ability to, to, to focus the way I used to. I, I, some of the research I, I did, the third party research, uh, in yesterday's presentation was, you know, have, if, if you, if you took time to be in a group of people a weekend, we just left our phones, uh, away. You know, some of the first things that we start to see that change, and it would take someone to point them out to us because we wouldn't necessarily realize it right away. Things like posture. Posture is the first thing to improve. We don't even realize how bad our posture is with these devices. Uh, things like uh, conversations actually start to go deeper because, for example, what we find ourselves doing that we don't realize is if somebody has a question, we just go Google it instead of having discourse to try to figure it out. Uh, relationships get deeper instead of shallow. I just fascinate things. And so I, I'm, I'm personally exploring this, and I'm also exploring design ethics and trying to amplify these messages to get people to understand we have to take sort of control back over this. I think we gave ourselves the technology a little bit. Well, not a little bit, a lot. Well, okay, so I have one, I know we're running up against time, but I have one question. Okay, so I couldn't, I mean, I'm, look, I'm pretty much, I only have a right brain, so, right, I don't even have a left brain, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I don't even know if that's humanly possible to agree with you more, but uh, <laughs> the thing is that the one thing that's interesting is, I mean, technology has obviously had a lot of benefits, too. And the question is, where does it become reaction versus uh, finding finding a good balance? And in other words, okay, I now push technology away to the point that I actually lose the value it does have for me. And is there any place, for example, I mean, other than, you know, let's call it... Um, any place in a normal life, uneventful life, where technology does play a good role in, uh, let's say, ele elevating the the benefit to that normal life. Again, I'm saying normal because there's plenty of opportunity when things are exceptional for technology to help. But I'm talking about when somebody doesn't have to deal with special needs or, on the other hand, there isn't something happening to them at that moment that's just dramatic, just normal is there is there benefit anywhere for technology to elevate that person's to benefit just to be make that life a little bit a little better that day the answer as a as a hopeless optimist is yes of course i think we have to first get to this weird personal i, I think so i'll take a step back the thing that i I believe in, uh, and I think what's going to be the, the focus of my work in the next few years is taking a step back from all of these very hyper-focused conversations like my last book was on experience design and focusing on the answer, which is the answer is yes, 
but you have to go through this journey first before you can get there, an individual journey, which is every great story of information, uh, innovation or transformation starts with an individual story of acceptance and aspiration and work to sort of understand that this, this is probably the single greatest disruptor of humanity right now. And, as an individual, like I'll, I'll, I'll just throw politics into this, right? If you're, if you believe that Parkland was a conspiracy, you're going to find everything on the internet to reinforce that. So we, we know it's not a conspiracy. And so we have to, as an individual, decide, are we going to allow ourselves to change and allow technology to improve? how we navigate life and how we navigate relationships and work. And if so, then I'm going to take a step back and realize I'm just too caught up in all of this stuff to take control. I become part of the machine. I become part of the problem. And I think everybody has to go through this individually to say, what, where am I in this journey? Where is my relationship with technology? And then we can look at how am I going to use it to do things that are better than today, more important than today, more focused than today. That's, that's a hard journey. I haven't even gotten there yet, and that's, that's something where I'm going to focus. Well, uh, one suggestion, uh, there's a lot of philosophical precedent for that, I mean, like schools of philosophy, literally, uh, that go centuries back. Literally, the exact questions you raised, because they just kept popping in my head when you were saying, and uh, off, offline, let's have a conversation about that, because they might, Absolutely. Uh, might be really interesting way to get sort of historical perspective on all this. Well, and, and, and to add to that, they say that the one of the best fields of study moving forward in an era of artificial intelligence is philosophy. Yeah. Right. One of my babies. All right, guys. I think, uh, unfortunately, we've kind of run out of time, but this is, this is really cool stuff. But it's not like this conversation will end. It actually picks back up in April, I guess. April 9th. <laughs> so, you guess. <laughs> so, so uh, this has been great, Brian. Thanks again for the time. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing you guys on, well, seeing you do the keynote April 9th at Sierra Revolution in D.C. We'll see you there, man. And hopefully yeah, I'm looking forward to it. April 8th. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. We're this conference. If you, in fact, if you're there on April eighth, come join us in the bar. And you'll get to watch this conversation. Yes. <laughs> it'll, it won't be Facebook Live. It'll just be live. Apparently, live. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Bye, guys. Take care.